I'm Stephen Fowler, and you're listening to Pipe and Drape, the only podcast that spotlights the creative minds behind the theater for young audiences industry. Every two weeks, I sit down with a theater professional to hear their stories about the audition, rehearsal, and development process of theater for young audiences. Each of them have bridged the path from youth to adulthood while working in the theater for young audiences industry. My guests have mounted shows small enough to fit in a minivan to productions so big they travel by caravan. You can join the conversation by emailing pipeanddrapestories at gmail.com or messaging pipeanddrapestories on Instagram. This is episode 21 of Pipe and Drape. In this episode, we're going on a magic carpet on a rail that never takes a rest. All aboard! This pipe and drape story is about the stage manager slash company manager who oversees the magic on the Polar Express train ride experience. Thank you for listening with me today. Hi, everyone. I'm here with actor, stage manager, production manager, company manager, and podcaster Becky Zaritsky. Becky was the first theater major I met at university, and we sat side by side for four years from convocation to commencement. In class, we put pencils behind our ears and pretended we were wearing body mics, and outside of class, we were making theater with Alpha Psi Omega. She was the last to walk the stage at our graduation with summa cum laude, cried after her name, and wild applause. And since then, she has traveled all over the globe. Work as an actor and stage manager has taken her to Big Fork Summer Playhouse in Montana, the elusive state, the Rev on tour in the Finger Lakes, Flagstaff Shakespeare Festival, Creed Rep, Oslo Rep, and the international tour of West Side Story. On her travels, she has climbed to new heights, literally. Becky has summited Mount Fuji, walked Mount Huashan, which is so dangerous, the Bavarian Alps, Tal Volcano Crater in the Philippines, Fay Canyon, the Great Sand Dunes in Colorado, the Grand Canyon, and structures like the Eiffel Tower and the Great Wall of China. Today, she is going to tell us about her trip on the Polar Express as a stage manager and company manager. Becky, welcome. Hi. Oh my gosh. What an introduction. I have the biggest smile on my face. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very excited that you're here joining me from, from almost all the way across the country. You're currently out in Flagstaff. Yes. Yeah. Um, out in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, and I've been here kind of off and on for the past um. I guess now going on three years um, since the beginning of 2019. And I feel like there's everyone who is not from Arizona, but currently lives in Arizona always says, never thought I'd live in Arizona, but here I am. (laughs) So I definitely resonate with that a little bit. So you're in, I literally just learned this today, uh, where you are, you do get seasons. It's not a dry, spooky desert completely. Right. Um, so we are at about 7,000 feet. Um, we're up in the mountains of Northern Arizona and it actually is considered a dry desert, or I'm sorry, a high desert. All deserts are dry. (laughs) Um, it's a high desert, but we do get all four seasons. We get snow, um, in the winter and the frost date is actually something like the end of May, early June. So there is a possibility that we could, I guess, get snow at any, like at any of, um, Uh, those months leading up to that. Um, And then we also get what's called monsoons um, during like July and August, uh, which is just, yeah, like torrential rain. 
Um, it actually causes some flooding in some parts of Flagstaff. And it's, I mean, it's that like double-edged sword where it's like, you don't want all that rain. You don't want all that snow necessarily, but it is a desert. So you do want all that rain and you do want all that snow because it is a desert and um, like fires, fire season is real. It's a literal state of extremes. <laughs> yeah. Um, very different from where um, where you grew up. Yeah. Um, growing up just outside of uh just outside of Philadelphia. Um, not a whole lot of mountains. Um, obviously like we do have like the Poconos. Um, but I remember my first like trip out West post-college, um, when I was going to work in Montana with uh, big fork summer playhouse. And, uh, I did a cross country road trip with my dad and just that road trip. And then also like actually being in Montana for the three months um, that I was there that summer, like those mountains, don't compare. Like the Rocky Mountains are just something else. And you um, have been keeping tabs of all of the mountains you've climbed. Like, like people can like look through your Instagram. I know I have and seen <laughs> basically everywhere that you have climbed since Instagram was invented. Yeah. And that, I guess, goes back to my first summer in Montana again, um, really just falling, falling in love with um, being out in nature and hiking and um, specifically like climbing a mountain or doing a particularly strenuous hike for like beautiful views and just realizing like what my body can do. And even if it's hard, it's like, I'm still capable of doing it. <laughs> do you remember, there's no segue for this. Do you, <laughs> Great. Do you remember your first experience with theater? Um, the first show that I remember seeing, um, was, uh, my synagogue did a production of Lil Abner and I must've been like in first grade or second grade. And I was like, and that, that was it. That was where I was like, yes, that's what I want to do. And I like turned to my mom and was like, how do I do that? How can I get up on stage and do that? Um, and so the next time that, uh, they had auditions, uh, for Fiddler on the Roof, which was the next show that they did. And that was my first show. Um, I auditioned and was one of the like ensemble and that was my intro and where I got the bug. Um, but I do also remember, uh, my sister and I being at a summer camp and us doing some song, um, for one of the talent shows, but as soon as I stepped out on stage, I got such terrible stage fright that I just tried to hide behind my sister the entire time. <laughs> and that, that I was, must've been like preschool or like kindergarten or something. So I was much younger than, um, the little Abner experience, <laughs> but I just remember like just having such stage fright. <laughs> and I think that's gone away. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it has. <laughs> just maybe studying theater for a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Uh, Becky and I ended up working for the same company uh, within the same couple of, of months. Yeah, because I was working um, basically as like a production assistant for, can I mention, are you, can I mention the, oh, yeah. okay, for the Rev. Yeah, formerly Mary go Playhouse. So I was working as basically like a production assistant for one of their like pillars of their summer um, theater. Um, when I was with them at that time, I think they had like three or four like, yeah, like pillars of their summer theater. They had their main stage, they had uh, like a more grungy, like downstage theater or, or downstage, downtown theater. 
<laughs> like, what am I trying to say? Um, and then they also had this program called The Pitch, which um, was basically like a new works, new musicals in development series. Um, so I worked on that, The Pitch. Um, and then I think it, I feel like it was like two days after my contract ended with that, you came up um, to start your contract with with them, right? Yeah, we we hung out for, for a couple days because I was moving into their, um, one of their housing places. And it was really nice to have you there. Uh, because I it was like my first time like moving like away away from home, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I was like, this is an elaborate ruse. They don't actually want me here. <laughs> um, so I, uh, but, but we had a good time. We went downtown and got our caricature done. Um, oh, we did. And as you do when you're in Auburn, New York, and then you ended up returning to the Rev um, as a performer slash road manager. Yeah. Um, a couple years later, I guess it was maybe like six years, six or seven seven years, something like that, after my first contract with them. And then just from being friends with um, Lisa, who is the, I'm going to butcher her title, but the director of education, um, something, the artistic director of education, something um, like that. And I saw that she had posted on Facebook, like, we're looking for actors for the summer tour. And um, so I reached out and then I did it that year and then came back for the following um, summer as well to do the summer show. So theater has taken you and your audiences um, figuratively, imaginatively to the North Pole um, this past wintery season. And so you were um, stage managing and company managing um, one of the Polar Express experiences in this country. Yes, yeah. Um, so I spent two uh, seasons as a stage manager. And uh, most recently, uh, the third season as a company manager. Um, so the stage manager, when I, when I was a stage manager, uh, it was local to the specific city that I was working on. And then as a company manager, it was for all of the cities that uh, the production company managed uh, nationwide. So yeah, so I was a stage manager for the Whippany, New Jersey um, production of the Polar Express, which is based out of um, everyone most everyone was contracted out of New York City. And so what they would actually do is they would, anybody who was in New York City, they would bus from the city to New Jersey. And it was maybe like a 40, 45 minute bus ride, depending on traffic, of course. Um, but that um, that was a courtesy shuttle. Like they definitely didn't have to do that, but it was really great that they did. <laughs> um, yeah, cause then it, you know, just made transportation from New York to your work just that much easier. Um, but yeah, but those um, could be really long days. Um, we would have anywhere between three to five product or three to five performances a day. And each performance, we would, the performance is, I guess, like, quote unquote, technically about an hour. But when you factor in, um, like, getting audience onto the train, and the actors are they're in it from, from the moment um, that the audience gets onto the train. Um, so even before the train moves, and that was maybe like 20 to 30 minutes. So it's really like, for all intents and purposes, like a one hour and 20 minute show, immersive show on a train. Um, so we did move and we did go to the North Pole. <laughs> and yeah, but it just long days uh, could be like, I guess up to 12 hours. Um, I think like our first, uh, yeah, our first performance for the day would be at like 1030. And then our final performance for the day would be at like 730. Um, something like that. 
Um, and then we would, but then you have to factor in like travel time before and after. So like catching a bus around like 9.15 and then not getting back to New York City um, until uh, like, I don't know, 10.30 maybe. But then that's just to Manhattan. And of course, I mean, if you can afford to live in Manhattan, awesome. But then of course there is the travel time um, from, it was Port Authority back to wherever your respective homes were. For our listeners who haven't um, been to the North Pole yet, uh, how big is this train? So the train in New so all of the trains nationwide that we managed, there's a the trains vary in size, and I think and I should know this, but I don't. But I think the smallest train was four performance cars, um, and then I think the largest train was eight performance cars. Um, but then there's also the production car where um, the stage manager would be and where um, the crew members would be, uh, uh, lighting technician, sound technician, production manager, et cetera. Um, but then there are the two like engines on either side as well, because um, the train obviously like, or maybe not obviously, but the train will go one way and then it will go back and then it might go like, it just kind of like not ping pongs back and forth, um, but it's not like a circle. Whippany had six performance cars. Um, so essentially there's six different shows happening at the same time. And all of the scenes will happen in each car just in a different order, right? Because the conductor, for instance, um, so he, the conductor is a character from the movie, The Polar Express, and the conductor is also on our Polar Express. And like, so the conductor can't be in all of the cars at once, right? So you just have to like cycle through the scenes. So the way that it's kind of situated is there are uh, three performance cars and then in the middle is the production car and then there are three performance cars. So you're like bookend it by those three performance cars and the shows that are happening in the cars closest to the production car, they're the same like script. So the conductor is doing those scenes like exactly the same. So they kind of like mirror each other. And then those middle cars, same thing. It's the same show that's happening, obviously with different actors, um, but the same scenes. And then the cars furthest away, same thing, of course. Uh, the same, they're, the same show is happening in both of those cars, obviously different actors, but they have the same script. But because we're on a train and because there are technically six shows happening at once, um, and I can't be in every car at once, I can't even really be in any car. Um, because if there is something that goes wrong, I need to be in that central location of the production car. Um, so we would listen in, um, there would be like monitors and I could listen in to any car that I wanted to. And that's how I called the show. So calling a show is uh, basically there is one centralized person, the stage manager who is giving the, the go ahead for things to happen. So, Anytime you see a light change or a sound cue happen, or sometimes, like sometimes, even the band um, uh, starting or a curtain moving, a set piece coming on, even like seeing a prop come onto stage, a stage manager had uh, definitely their eyes on that. And or if it were any was anything technical, a stage manager kind of gave the go ahead to make sure that things are happening in a consistent order. If there are any, if there is any troubleshooting that needs to happen, they might call a show differently to allow for maybe some safety aspects to, uh, yeah, if, if something isn't working properly and if something gets stuck, 
in communication with whoever is backstage running that automation, the stage manager might delay calling the scene, calling the lights to start that scene so that automation can fix what they need to fix um, if they can do it within that time frame before calling the lights to start that scene. So the way that I would call this show was based off of time and based off of um, sound. Um, so I would start the timer, of course, um, when our quote unquote show started. Um, and then I had some cues that were like, this ideally will be called at like four minutes and 30 seconds into the show. And then um, yeah, like, yeah, just to like trigger the next scene that happens in um, the cars. And then also some cues were taken um, via that monitor. Um, so like, okay, I'm listening in car one and I'm waiting for the conductor to finish his line of this scene. And then that means that I can start the next or that, that I can give the cue to start the next scene. So those were the two ways uh, that I would call it. And there were some times where I forgot to start that timer. And let me tell you, that's as somebody who think who doesn't consider themselves like who doesn't consider themselves to have a strong like quick math skill. <laughs> some of those things where I'm like, oh God, okay, whew, okay, math. Uh, uh. Um, but luckily, uh, there was never any uh, show stop because of that. <laughs> um, we would have uh, like the power go out and or like the generator i guess would um not fail but the generator would i mean yeah would stop working um and so what would happen is and when we say the power would go out the hour lights and sound so the the lights and sound that the production that the theater production team put onto the train in the cars they would all go out and stop working but luckily that didn't ever mean that like the people were in a total darkness or blackout there were still like the train lights mostly would work or like their like floodlights or emergency lights would work so nobody was ever like in complete darkness um but there were a couple times where everything would just go out and during the rehearsal process the actors were given the tools um if this type of situation happened what to do either to mostly it was continue the scene because when we would get the power back it would pick up not where it left off but where it was like going to go or like where it would be in real time um and they were great and my first year in 2018 that happened not a lot but it definitely happened enough where it was like is it going to happen today type of thing um and it was no fault for anyone i think it may have just like whatever was happening with the generator or i don't know um and we would have like backups so it was never like we were stuck for hours it was just like oh, we're going to be here for like two minutes or something. And then we'd be able to get the train back up and running, get back into the to into the station um, safely and stuff. To prepare for, for I mean, these contingencies, but also your regular three to five show day, what did you have to do to get everything ready before each show? Yeah, so we would have a safety meeting before each, um, at the start of every day. Um, because, oh, something that I hadn't mentioned before was it was in Whippany, we had four different casts and in other cities, it varied from three to four different casts, um, as well as, so there is the hero ch child, um, like from the movie, we also carried that into the train, into the train ride. And so we in Whippany would have like 10 to 12 of those. Um, when I was there, they were just boys. Um, but now, uh, since this past holiday season, there are now hero children um, and it's not just uh, boys. Um, but so we had 10 or 12 of them, you know, child labor laws, they 
weren't allowed to do every show and they weren't even allowed to do every like like they couldn't do a full week's worth of shows but they also couldn't do a full day's worth of shows um so at that safety meeting it would be um just like a reminder like who's on what side of the train um so it was like red blue yellow green casts for whippany um what hero kids were there that day if there were any ins and outs um you know being the holiday season there were and just being very strenuous days there were people who would get sick um so when the train was um uh, riding past the north pole there were elves outside dancing and uh, spreading that holiday cheer in that sense so sometimes we would have to pull people from the north pole to be on the train sometimes um we would ask cast members to come in on a day off and that was never a requirement um if it was your day off you were you could absolutely say no um you did not have to be on the train that day um but sometimes it, it did come down to that particularly my first year um and then my second year we had swings um which was great <laughs> so then we would have two swings per um per uh just in the production car um ready to go on if somebody went out um mid-show which sometimes happens <laughs> or if at the end of a, a show someone was like i am not feeling well i don't think i can continue with the day it's like great we'll put the swing on um yeah so we would start with the safety meeting just a reminder of who's um who's out who's filling in who's there etc um and then the actors were responsible for making sure that their like props were set up um and we had a lighting technician and a sound technician um, who are on the train and they would make sure that each car lights and sound were working. The stage manager would go through and there weren't like specific things for us to check. Like I never checked to make sure that props were there. Um, that's something that I relied on the actors to do or really to get back to. We also had a props um, and a wardrobe person also in the production car um, riding with us. So if there was anything they could radio in to us um, to just be like, hey, we're missing whatever or and that's also something that they would do during the run of show if there were any problems. Um, each car had a radio and the production car, um, I had a radio, like our production manager had a radio, our train master had a radio. So if there were any problems either with the train uh, or like the bathroom, say, like in the train cars, or if there were any problems technically uh, with like the sound or the lights or um, if there were any problems with passengers also um, they could radio into us and uh, if it was something that needed to be dealt with we would send someone out to go help them with it or if it was like hey just an fyi this is happening um, but we don't need any like we don't need anyone to like come and fix it but like just so you know this is happening one of the biggest takeaways um particularly from my first season that then helped care that then carried into um the next seasons with the polar express slash also just in my career or whatnot um was thinking of problems as puzzles and like just trying to come up with like ways to make that puzzle fit together um and specifically like that image came to me when we were um when we did have people call out and we were trying to fill in those holes so I don't know, it was very daunting. And for me, just thinking about it as a literal puzzle, like, okay, this person, this puzzle piece isn't here, but I have these other puzzle pieces. So how can I make them, how can I still have this, do this show and make sure that all of the puzzle pieces fit together. But then when you also think about it as like a puzzle, and this actually came up in my interview um, with the production stage manager, where he was like, 
you don't need to know how to fix everything on the train. Like you're not going to know how to fix everything on the train. You just need to know who to talk to or like, you just need to know who knows how to do that. So it's like, we're not going to expect you to fix the sound. Like you just need to make sure that like the soundboard operator knows like, Hey, this is what's happening. This is the car. Cause again, there are six cars. They're not going just like stage left or stage, right. They're either going to car one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, so yeah. So like delegation, I guess. <laughs> oh, a big thing that I guess I should mention is we were on a train. Like that is a moving train <laughs> and it's an active rail yard too. Like safety was always the number one thing. And anything that came from the train personnel, like pretty much always superseded. If it's like, if they're telling you to like move or go somewhere or like uh, get onto or disembark the train in a certain way, like listen to them because they, <laughs> it's all about safety. And uh, in the production car, there would always be at least one, um, we would call them the train masters. Um, and they were our communication to the people who were um, uh, the engineers who were on either side of the train making the train run. Um, and so the way that like my communication was with like getting the train to move was um, I would like radio the train master or if they were sitting right next to me more often than not, I would be like stage manager to train master, like train is good to go. Or I can't remember what I, what I would specifically say, but it'd be like, we're like train can move or something like that. And then there were moments um, in the show that we would stop the train like for a caribou crossing like cutesy little moment and so that would also be like stage manager to train master like okay to make a safe stop and then the train master would radio to um the engineers on either side and say if it was safe or they would say like okay to make a safe stop and then either we would make a safe stop or sometimes the the engineers would say like oh we can't make a safe stop right now but we can in like 30 seconds or something like that I, and I only remember that happening once, maybe twice, where we couldn't stop for caribou crossing at the like, it was like the four minute 30 second mark or something because we hadn't cleared. Um, maybe it was because we hadn't cleared um, uh, a watch, like a, a, a railroad crossing, um, because this was also like we were not in a rural town here like we were, we had railroad crossings and like looking out the window, just seeing all these cars, like just waiting to cross these tracks. And it's like, so sorry. And like all of the houses that of uh, the people who live nearby. Um, but yeah, but I, I only remember that happening once where it wasn't a safe stop. So it was like, okay. And then for me, that's a moment where I would radio to the, to the cars, um, to say like, like, caribou crossing isn't happening on time like just vamp or whatever or like we know the train hasn't stopped like give it 20 seconds or whatever um and sometimes people would hear that um but because the radios weren't like attached to the actors because obviously you don't want to break that magic um oftentimes like i would then get like frantic uh radio calls back in like we haven't stopped or like the music cut out and i'm just like yep we know like thank you like just keep vamping like we'll stop when we can stuff like that um which i mean and that's just like a i don't know like yes i'm saying the same thing but you also didn't hear it and i know you didn't and you're dealing with like 50 patrons and some of them are like three years old like so i'm like yeah i can repeat this information for you <laughs> how what was what was the age range of people that were experiencing this oh yeah we anywhere from babies to grandparents um yeah there were people of all different ages 
um, people of all different, yeah, from all different walks of life. A lot of times, of course, it was families um, or like parents with like younger kids, grandparents with their kids and then their kids' kids. <laughs> um, but every now and then there'd be like teenagers and you would just like hope that they're like in the magic of it. And sometimes they were and sometimes they weren't, but what you gonna do? But that a big thing, a big, big thing that the director instilled during the rehearsal process to the actors was that like every person is a child at heart and it doesn't matter how old you are, like, the genuineness of, I guess, like the holiday spirit is still for them. And it was never like, you're only acting for the kids. That was not the case. It's like, you are telling the story for everybody. In 2019, I was asked to help with the rehearsals um, in California in one of the cities in California. And the hobo character has this really beautiful and genuine monologue at the end and it really is all about like you're never too old to have that like spirit and i just remember there was one hobo who who was giving this final monologue and the whole room just had chills because the way that just it was just so genuine and he had made like some like musical connections to from the monologue to some of the songs in the show so i think it's like his line was, it's a magic carpet on a rail, never takes a rest. And I think that's also in the movie, but that is like, yeah. So it's, it's a magic carpet on a rail, never takes a rest. And he like d gave that line a little bit of musicality. And we hadn't like, no, I, I don't think any other hobo had done that before. So we were all just like, oh my gosh, like, wow. Like that just hit right in the heart. What was it like rehearsing this show normally madness you know if, you, if you're lucky you're <laughs> in a room where the set is taped out on the floor so you get a general sense of where it is you you know like okay I'm looking this direction because the audience is here um this is this is a train so we did tape down the um tape down like the aisles and it's actually it's really easy because you're just taping down the aisle and then you put chairs on either side. So the way that we would rehearse it was, I'd mentioned that there were um, different casts or uh, yeah, yeah, different casts. So it's like, there might there might be four hobos, but it's four different casts, right? Because if there are two sides to a train, you at least need two hobos on any given day, et cetera. So we would tape out however many casts there were, that's how many like lines we would, or um, aisles we would tape out. So in Whippany, we had the four casts, red, blue, yellow, green. So we would tape out four aisles. And the way that we did it was if uh, let's say car one was rehearsing that day or that hour or whatever, um, everyone else would be the audience for them so that they weren't um, just like running the show without any audience. Cause so much of it is audience participation. And, and yeah, it, it's, I mean, technically I guess it's immersive theater. Like they are in the train car. A lot of it is timed to the music, um, a lot of the scenes. So uh, there was a big technical aspect to the rehearsals in that sense. But luckily I wasn't the only stage manager in the room. Um, there was at least, so there are at least two local stage managers plus the traveling um, production stage manager and the production stage manager uh, and the assistant production stage manager. Um, so I, I was lucky in that there were usually four people in the room some cities it gets a little different because it's like 
once it is rehearsing and then they open and then once they're like opening then the like half the team will go to the next city but like their city a is still like maybe they haven't had opening night yet but city b has started rehearsals so it was kind of like a rolling effect um but whippany was the first city um so they actually start rehearsals before halloween and yeah <laughs> and then they open like the first week of november or like the second week of november um or at least that's how we did it in years past um assuming it'll be the same for the rest of or yeah assuming it would be the same for this year as well um so yeah so we were the first city but then it's like a rolling so like whippany will open great and then the next city will rehearse and then they'll open great so then you have two cities opened one city's in rehearsal and then it's just like a rolling opening like that which can get confusing if you're on the production end of things <laughs> yeah how was um managing that from the your company manager standpoint and when you went back it was a lot um and i really didn't have like all of the production schedules were more or less figured out before i got there so I wasn't necessarily like part of that process, but I was part of the like, oh, okay, well, this city, um, it's opening day, but we're going to send half the team to the next city. So it's like, I did have to like coordinate some of that stuff. Um, but then also like part of my responsibilities this past season was um, company meals for those tech, those long tech days. And then also for um, the like five or six show days, you know, those 12 hour days. Um, so that was also important to know like, okay, well, who is going to be where, when, <laughs> um, if it was the traveling production team. Um, but then also like with the actors and with the crew, not everyone is on the train every single day. So for that, it was like, okay, well, who's going to be on the train four weeks from now, because I need to get that ball rolling so that it's not the day before and I don't have any caterers and they have no food type of thing. Um, yeah, so it was really like anything that you do for one show, you're doing times however many shows <laughs> you're doing that season. So last season we did five. So it's like, yeah, whatever I was doing, I was doing times five. Were you um, just based in one location for that or did you bounce around a little bit? My position was remote um, and I, I wanted that. That also allowed me to like, I had a couple weddings that I wanted to go to. I wanted to be with my family for Thanksgiving, um, which might not have been something that would have happened if I had to go or if this position had been um, location-based. But um, there was a moment where I did get asked, I was like, do you want to come out to one of the cities just to like be with everyone? And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I do. Um, so I went to Miami because, you know, Miami, <laughs> December, I want it to be warm. <laughs> I've been there. I get that. Um, yep. <laughs> what is something wild, crazy, unusual, fun, exciting that happened to you while working on the Polar Express, which is quite a sentence in itself? Yeah. So the reason that I interviewed for the position in 2018 um they were looking for replacement stage managers so i didn't go through the rehearsal or tech process my first year i came in after the show had already opened and i found out about it because my friend had worked at actually creed rep um that previous summer and one of the stage managers that he worked with is the psm for the polar express and when he reached out saying like hey does anybody have any know any stage managers like i have to i need to find two replacements um and so then my friend passed on my information and i interviewed uh 
got the offer. Um, but I did have an ASM offer for Creed Rap that summer, but I wasn't so sure that I wanted to continue stage managing. And then actually that's when I saw uh, that the Rev was hiring for summer actors. Um, so it was really fortuitous for me in that sense. Cause then I was like, oh great. Like, and that was my first like acting gig kind of back from, from doing a lot of years worth of stage management. And I, so me turning down that Creed rep job, I was convinced that the, the new guy, that the PSM like took that position. So, sorry, the PSM for the Polar Express also worked at Creed Rap. And so I was so convinced that I was like, oh, wow, like I turned down this job and like, then this great guy takes it and then he's looking for stuff. And my friend worked with him and then like my resume got passed or like my, my contact info got passed along. So it felt like it was just kind of like this domino of like, oh yeah, like that's like, that's what was meant to happen. Um, I don't think after talking to him and talking to uh, my friend, my a different friend who was the PSM at Creed Rep, I think he had filled a different role, but I just like to think that like, yeah, everything happens for a reason. And I don't know, I feel like sometimes when we're in school or maybe when we're just starting out, we feel like we have to take everything that comes our way. And it's hard to like say no to something when it's there. And when you're looking and like where you're looking at something that's there, but you're not sure. And the alternative is who knows is uncertainty and nothing. <laughs> and so, yeah, like, it's just so hard to say no, but um, I mean, looking back and even in it, I was glad to have said no to that. Cause then it opened up other things. Previously, I felt as though I couldn't be both a stage manager and an actor. And whenever I was in like a stage management position, I felt like I needed to hide that I was also an actor. And I guess maybe because I was older or maybe because I was now feeling more certain about myself, myself in terms of stage management, I felt like I could like talk about being both and not feel like I needed to hide it. And yeah, I guess I had, I was having a conversation with a friend and he was like, Becky, how many people do you know who only do one thing in theater? And I was like, even the, like, even like an actor who I can, who I would be like, that's the best actor and the most successful actor I know. They're also a teaching artist or maybe they're a playwright or, you, you know, so it's like nobody bats an eye when a sound designer is also a lighting designer or when a director is also a choreographer or when an actor is also a playwright. So I was like, so why was I limiting myself to only to feeling like I could only be one of those things. So that was also, I guess, a realization I had. Multi-hyphenate Becky, thank you for yeah. speaking with me today. <laughs> How can our listeners see more of what you're up to and find out what you're working on? You can find me on Instagram at Beck Zarit. I also, uh, I do my own hashtag, hashtag Beck side story. Um, that started out, uh, from the West side story tour. I, you can also find me on my website, uh, at beckyzaritsky.com and it's Becky with an I. And I'm also one of the shrews on a podcast called untamed shrews podcast. That's hosted by the Flagstaff Shakespeare festival. And you can find Untamed Shrews on Instagram at Untamed Shrews Podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can join the conversation about theater for young audiences and find more Pipe and Drape content, including photos, quotes, and TYA news on Instagram at Pipe and Drape Stories. 
And please be sure to rate and review Pipe and Drape wherever you listen to podcasts. Each star given and review submitted helps future listeners find the show. Be sure to tune in every other Tuesday to hear Theater for Young audiences' creatives share their Pipe and Drape stories. Pipe and Drape is created and hosted by Stephen Bella and distributed by Anchor. The Pipe and Drape logo was created by Stephen Gordon and music was composed by Stephen Bella. Thank you for listening with me today.